We're going to be turning to Philippians this morning to continue our series. If you want to turn there, Philippians is in the New Testament, just after Galatians and Ephesians, before Colossians and Thessalonians. You can look at it in your bulletin, on your announcements, maybe on your phone if you have an app or the internet there that you want to look at it on. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Let me share a little bit to put the passage in context for us to explain a little bit of what Paul was dealing with. I had the, the privilege the other day of going to the, my first Hog Mountain Bowl here in Oconee County. You have Oconee playing North Oconee. And as I sat on the sidelines and watched the game, I, I just sat in awe of just how big these guys were. I mean, giants on the Oconee side, giants on the North Oconee side on the varsity team. I mean, I, I would always run for a loss of yards if I ever tried to go against them. I mean, they were just massive. And it was interesting to think about that in light of our passage this week. How convenient. And just wonder, if you had like, let's just say a fourth grader who played flag football out at Oconee Veterans Park and thought, you know, I'm going to try to go against the defense of Oconee or the North Oconee Giants and see how far I can get. I think all of us would look at that and go, that poor kid. I mean, he's not going to make it anywhere. Those guys are so big and strong that there's no way that that, that little kid, fourth grade, used to flag football, is going to advance one yard against those Giants. It's one way to look at it. Maybe you think last week, some of you know this, there was a tropical storm that hit San Diego, Las Vegas, L.A., that area, um, where I went to graduate school, so I made sure that all my friends are okay and they're doing just fine. But 80-mile-an-hour winds. Now, just imagine that you're a seagull that lives somewhere near the beach of San Diego, and you're trying to advance against the wind of 80-mile-an-hour tropical storm Hillary. There's no way. The winds are so big, so strong, so fast that there's no way that that little seagull is going to advance against those kinds of winds. Now, you put those two kind of ideas and concepts in your minds at the forefront and then start thinking about Rome. Think about how big Rome is. Think about how powerful Rome is. Think about how against the gospel Rome is at the time of Paul. And all Paul has is himself some of his letters show that people thought of him as small and weak and unimpressive, but especially what he brought with the gospel, a message about a Messiah that was crucified in Jerusalem. Will that seemingly weak message have any power at all to go against the opposition of Rome? Will that gospel continue to advance? Or is Rome too strong? Let's see together. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Paul is writing this as he's in prison. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to all the throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The reading of God's word which he has given to you because he loves you and he wants you to know him. Let's pray. Father, would you give us the same joy that Paul has, that he can be in prison and still find joy. Would you help us either come to know or be increasingly convinced of the power of the gospel of Christ crucified? Holy Spirit, would you show us the glory of Jesus this morning, even as we look at your word? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to look first this morning at the advance of the gospel. It's going to be our first main theme. And then we're going to look at the joy of a heart rooted in the gospel. Can the gospel advance against so much opposition? The opposition of all of Rome, the opposition of the culture around it. Let me just share for you this morning a little bit of the opposition that the gospel itself faces while Paul is in prison. It faces cultural opposition. If you go to Philippi, if you go to Rome, if you really went anywhere at all in that culture of that day, what you would say, see is paganism, idolatry, syncretism, hedonism, all kinds of things that would just say, if the gospel ever tries to advance here, this culture is going to do everything it can to stop it. There's cultural opposition everywhere. There's political opposition. Where Paul is writing from Rome, there was a ruler named Caesar. And if you looked at any of the coins that were there, if you looked at anything in that culture, if you looked at the name on top of buildings, it usually said something like, Caesar is Lord. Alone. And Caesar, being Lord of the day in that culture, would brook no opposition. So there was incredible political opposition to the gospel to say, Jesus is Lord, as opposed to Caesar is Lord. There's also social opposition. Listen, in that culture, you would wake up in the morning, you would offer uh, sacrifices to your family gods, you'd go to work, and if you went to work, you'd offer sacrifices to uh, the vocational gods of that area. Throughout the day, you'd offer little sacrifices to regional gods just to make sure they're not angry because that's what you do. You have to pull these levers and make sure they're happy with you. If you don't do that, the, the gods would do something to show that they were upset. And Christians coming around and saying that Jesus alone is Lord, that he gave the only sacrifice that returns and reconciles us back to God, boy, you're disrupting social fabric. And so... In society, there was this enormous social pressure against Christianity and against the gospel because it might make the gods upset. Uh, a professor that I enjoy by the name of Larry Hurtado, who taught at the University of Edinburgh, just passed a couple years ago, uh, said this in one of his books. He says, The combination of popular abuse, cultured critique, and official repression across the better part of three centuries 
locally at first and then empire-wide towards the end has no parallel. And so when it comes to the preaching and proclamation of the gospel that Paul is doing here in this text, there has never in the history of human civilization been a movement that has been so viciously opposed with this kind of intensity and that kind of longevity. And surely you could look at that in the very beginnings and going, it looks like the odds are against us. Looks like the gospel is not really going to advance. I mean, it's just proclaiming by words all that Christ has done for us. And yet through studies, Hurtado estimates that by the time of 100 A.D., about seven to 10,000 Christians existed. Uh, by 200 A.D., about 200,000 believers. And by 300 A.D., about five to six million. I mean, you put all the weight of the Roman Empire and culture and society against the gospel and the gospel is still moving forward. That's why as we think about the advancement of the gospel, the gospel advances against enormous opposition. That's why Paul is writing to the Philippians. They're concerned that if he's in prison in Rome, surely he must be discouraged. Surely this is a setback in light of the gospel. And you can see in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers... He's letting them know what's happening. He says that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That despite all the opposition that Paul is seeing there in Rome, the gospel is advancing. And you'll notice in verse 13, he says, So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Listen, when he mentions the imperial guard, he's not just mentioning Roman soldiers. He's talking about the elite of the elite. He's not just talking about the Navy SEALs. He's talking about Navy SEAL Group 6, okay, or Team 6. These are the best of the best. And surely Paul could sit there and be like, it's over for me. It's not going to happen anymore. They've stopped me. They've stopped the preaching of the gospel. And instead, he says, this has served to advance the gospel. It's given him opportunity to share more and more the word of Christ. I love how by the end of the book of Acts, you see something very similar. That not only are the religious uh, leaders of the day within Israel, and also some of the cultural leaders of the day within Rome throwing all of their weight in opposition against Paul, against believers, the last word of the book of Acts is, and the gospel advanced, listen, here's the word that's used in the book of Acts, unhindered. No hindrance. Because the gospel is that powerful. And I love how Paul in 2 Timothy says that, he says, look, I am writing to you in chains. And I love how he says this, but the gospel is not chained. You can't stop the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. The gospel advances in the middle of extreme, significant, substantial opposition. Just to step back for a moment, why is that good news for you and I? Here, here's one of the things that I see that just comes in cycles. In my 42 years of living, something happens in the world out there, something happens in our culture here, whatever else it is, and, 
And as believers, sometimes we go, oh no, it's, it's getting so dark and I'm afraid and this is happening and this is happening and we get anxious and fearful about what's going to happen to the church and the gospel. It's going to continue to advance. All throughout history, there have been dark times and all throughout history, the gospel has continued to advance. So it's encouraging for believers to know that no matter what happens near to us or far from us, even if the opposition gets severe, the gospel continues to advance. If you just heard the reports that are coming out of North Korea, China, Afghanistan, other places in the Middle East, many of those places, despite severe opposition, are experiencing significant revival in Christianity. So many people are coming to Christ because the gospel is unhindered and the gospel is unchained. It's also an encouragement to you here this morning, if, if you've yet to put your faith in Christ and you're thinking about the claims of, of the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners, is this true? Maybe a, a friend invited you here or a neighbor or a co-worker, something like that. Listen, this doesn't prove the truth of Christianity but it does commend itself for your consideration to say the, mo the greatest superpowers on earth have tried to squash these beliefs, to destroy this religion from the face of the earth and have thrown all of their hard power and soft power on it. And it's still growing. There's a, a man in the book of Acts, and he's looking at it growing. He doesn't know whether he should oppose it or at least allow it. And he says, I, if it's just a movement that's made by man, it'll just go by the wayside. But if it's of God, no matter what we do, it'll likely keep on going. And it's been going and going and going because the gospel advances even in the middle of severe opposition. The gospel advances also in the middle of personal hardship. This isn't just something general that's happening out there. You'll notice in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me. It's not just cultural opposition out there. It's, it's hardship that's happening to Paul. It's real for him. It's personal for him. He is the one that's in chains as he writes this letter to the Philippians. That's one of the things that we have to remind ourselves that the gospel does not promise a carefree, comfortable, and convenient life. One of the things Jesus said to Paul when he was converted was, it says that he told Paul all that he would have to suffer for the sake of the name. And then Paul tells believers also in the end of Philippians, chapter 3, he'll talk about that if we want to experience his resurrection power, we have to share in his sufferings. And so Christianity, the Bible doesn't promise a carefree, comfortable, convenient life. But it does say that there will be times when hardships come. And even then, that does not hinder the advancement of the gospel. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Others would look at Paul and say, what an obstacle he's facing. And he would say, what an opportunity. Others would see what Paul was facing and say, man, the pain, Paul, of being in prison. And he would say, what a privilege to proclaim Christ. Others would see him and say, man, what a setback. Rome's throwing all of its weight against you. 
And he would say, what a strategy. That I could preach to these soldiers and everyone around us and they would hear the gospel. And in many ways what Paul is saying is, you can take away my comforts. You can take away my conveniences. You can take me from my community. But you can't take Jesus. And because of that, I can still have joy even when I'm in prison. You can take it all away. I still have Jesus because of the gospel of him crucified on my behalf. And I'll still proclaim him and the gospel will still advance. The gospel advances in the middle of powerful opposition, personal hardship. And you'll also see that the gospel advances through the powerful influence of personal example. Isn't that the case? If you, if you see somebody sharing the gospel in a way that's wise and sensitive and also really powerful at the same time, that it starts to encourage you. Uh, he's acknowledging that for many believers in the Philippians' midst and in his midst, that there's this, this fear and this hesitation to share the gospel. But you can see what happens in, in verse 14. He says, but most of the brothers, not all of them, but most of the brothers having become competent in the Lord by my imprisonment. They didn't lose their confidence. They weren't saying, whoa, if we do this, we could be put in jail just like Paul. They became more confident. And listen to the language that it says. They are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so Paul is saying, do you, do you see how the, the gospel advances through my weakness? The gospel can advance through your weakness. The gospel can dispel your fears so that you can preach the need for faith in Christ to others. The encouragement to all of us this morning as believers who look to Christ that the gospel advances in the middle of severe opposition. The gospel can advance in the midst of personal hardship. It reminds me of this, this woman that I... Um, talked to in Lexington, South Carolina. She had just got diagnosed with a disease that would take her life in about four or five years. And about three years into it, I talked to her and she was so filled with joy. And she goes, Clay, I've got to share the gospel with all the doctors and all the nurses. And I'm just okay with that. And it was amazing to see her heart. She could have one posture, but she says, this, even though this genuinely grieves me and brings me sorrow, it's given me so many opportunities. And the powerful example of personal influence as well. Well, it's not just the advance of the gospel. It's the heart or the joy of a heart rooted in the gospel as well. That's what he moves to in verse 15 and what we move to now. Here's one of the things that you see in this text that's hard to just acknowledge and to see. That not just their hearts back then, I'd, I'd reckon to say we all wrestle with it still now, or we at least all see it in religious communities, that the heart can do very spiritual things for very unspiritual reasons. The heart can do very spiritual things for very unspiritual reasons. Look in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ. And you're like, yes, that's a wonderful thing to do, a very spiritual thing to do. But notice what he says. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of 
rivalry, or some of your translations say selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So what you see on the outside is something very spiritual. Preaching Christ. What you don't see is what's going on on the inside. It's very unspiritual. Envy. Rivalry. Selfish ambition. They're trying to afflict Paul while he's in prison. Why would this be the case? What's some of the things that are really driving them? I would say it might be some of these things. It might be popularity. You know what? I mean, Paul, Paul has so many followers on social media. I want some too. Is that bad? And maybe if he kind of gets put in prison and doesn't have access to anything and can't put stuff out there, maybe I'll get more followers and, and I'll be more popular than Paul. Do you see that just clamoring for popularity, possibly, that Paul is saying is happening here? Maybe it's an issue of capability. This was an issue in the Corinthian church that Paul addresses explicitly. It was this, yeah, you think Paul's a good preacher? preacher? You should listen to me. You think Paul knows the Old Testament? I know it better. Yeah, you think Paul's a good theologian? I mean, have you read what I've written? Right? Of just... They envy Paul. They'll rivalry against Paul. They themselves have selfish ambition. But it could also be simply relational hostility. Not just popularity or an issue of capability, but relational hostility. There's something about Paul they don't like. And so they just but they'd like him to suffer a little bit in prison. It might be his personality. It might be the way he says certain things. It might be the sandals that he wears. I mean, this, they look so bad, right? Why would he wear sandals like that? The sports team he cheers for. He's got it all wrong. Something about Paul they don't like, and they would just like him to suffer a little bit. They are doing a very spiritual thing, preaching Christ for very unspiritual reasons. Envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, I'm so glad the church doesn't deal with that anymore. Now, I have to admit this morning that I'm one of the greatest offenders there. Some of you know this about my story. When I started out as a young pastor, got called to a, a church of, um, where one of my mentors used to be, and I was preaching Christ. I was going to the hospitals. I was going to meetings. I was trying to disciple 800 people. I was doing all of those things. I was exhausting myself. And you'd say, Clay, those are so, such spiritual things. But what was I really trying to do? I was trying to get your attention. I wanted to impress you. I wanted you to think real highly of me. Because I was doing all these spiritual things. And it exhausted me. And it drove me into the ground. I was doing very spiritual things. Yes, for some good motives. But also simply to impress others. Sometimes we can pursue humility and vulnerability, openness. To say, don't you think I'm humble? Or do you see how vulnerable I am? Just focus on me. I want your attention. Please, just focus on me for this moment, right now. Me. Focus on me. I don't get that much anywhere else, but if I'm just vulnerable, just me right now. Spiritual things for very unspiritual reasons. Sometimes we can serve constantly so much in the church because we just don't want to be at home with all the chaos that's there. 
in so many different ways that we can't even list them exhaustively this morning, the heart is capable of doing spiritual things for very unspiritual reasons. And I love how Paul names it here in this text. He says, you know what that is? It's pretense. Notice the language that he uses at the end of this section in verse 18. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. What is pretense? It's, it's putting up, intentionally putting up an image or a facade to cover what's behind it. Now let's pause and step back, take a deep breath. Some of you heard me talk about these before, but how about zoos? You think and you experience everything in a zoo to be authentic and real and, uh, you know, what you would expect it to be. But here's some things that zoos have done around the world that were done in pretense. One zoo in Australia spray-painted donkeys to look like zebras. The kids won't notice, right? How would you like to be one of those donkeys? I mean, they're just like, what are you doing? All right, I won't talk like a donkey this morning. Uh, one, one zoo put it like this. They took two um, Tibetan Mastiff dogs. If you know those dogs, they're really big. They're really furry. They shaved most of its body except for around its neck so that it could pass off as, yes, you guessed it, lions. True story. Uh, another zoo put up fake plastic penguins surrounded by geese to pass as a live penguin exhibit. And last, one of my favorites, if you see the picture of the zoo that did this, it's, it's hilarious. They put two chow chow puppies together and tried to pass them off as baby pandas. How cute. Pretense. But boy, it is not cute and it's not funny when we do it. Especially if you're a believer, or excuse me, not a believer in Jesus, and you look at the church and you go, there's so much pretense there. Religious people can be so pretentious and put up one facade, but behind they're driven by so many different things. Listen, if that bothers you, you're in good company. It bothered Jesus too. Jesus would call the religious leaders of his day whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers. How you like those apples, right? Paul couldn't stand it either. He's naming it here. He's saying this is pretense. It's where the outside doesn't match the inside. And what they want is genuineness, where the outside does match the inside. So those are hearts that are not being rooted in the gospel, but Paul exhibits a heart that is rooted in the gospel. What he could do here with not only opposition on the outside, but also opposition coming from the inside of the church as well, he could spend a lot of time ruminating on it, and throw a pity party for himself. And just kind of going to a really dark place of discouragement and going, guys, I'm riding from prison. It's so hard. I mean, it's the Praetorian Guard. These are like the Navy SEALs. There's no way I'm getting out. All I have is this thing called the gospel. It seems so weak. There's people inside the church, but for some reason they don't like me. They're writing and they're preaching in order to hinder me. It's just so hard. Can you believe what I'm going through? He could do that. He could seek revenge. This is kind of the place I would tend to go. If I could channel Liam Neeson right now, some of you know my illusion here. Uh, Paul could say this. He could call someone up on a cell phone that he knew was trying to afflict him in prison, and he could say this, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. 
But what I do have is a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long time. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you stop coming against me now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I'll point my angry finger at you. Right? He, he doesn't seek revenge. Nor is he ruminating on it to go to a place of dark discouragement, nor is he rooting his heart in something other than the gospel. If he rooted his heart in comfort and convenience, prison would be devastating to him. But it's not. If he rooted his heart in other people's acceptance and approval, criticism and rivalry would be devastating to him. But it's not. Discouraging, yes, but not devastating. What you see in Paul is what God desires of all of us are hearts that are deeply rooted in the gospel and find joy in the gospel. That's why, against all expectations, Paul says this at the end of this passage. After all he's going through, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Even in prison, even when there's so much opposition, hardship, he can rejoice. Even when there's some who are doing so many spiritual things for so many unspiritual reasons, he still rejoices because his heart is anchored in the character of God. God is so good, and through Christ, he forgave me. He showed me mercy. And his heart is rooted in the advance of the gospel the power of the message of Christ crucified. Is your heart rooted not in comfort and convenience or someone else's acceptance or attention given to you, but is your heart most deeply rooted in the gospel? So that even if there's opposition out there, or even sometimes in here, you can still say, yet, because of God and what he's done for me in and through Christ, I can rejoice. That's what God calls you to see this morning is the power of the gospel's advance and the power of a heart that is rooted in the character of God and the advance of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, help us to find joy and confidence and the power of the gospel to continue to advance in this world, in this community, in our neighborhood, at our work, in our schools. The gospel is that powerful. Father, we confess the ways at times that we do spiritual things for very unspiritual reasons and pray that we grow in gospel maturity like Paul and even though we endure so many different things outside and inside, we can still rejoice that Christ is our Savior and His gospel is still advancing. Lord, encourage our hearts with these things this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.